Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking again with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and Chief Medical Officer at Ohio University. Dr. Johnson also serves as Chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Today, Dr. Johnson helps us understand the role of public health officials and the whole concept of contact tracing during a pandemic. Dr. Johnson, I know as part of the Heritage College, uh, you've sort of launched about 250 third-year students, and I, I think the word is that you deployed them to health agencies. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, recently we had to remove all of our students from clinical rotations due to COVID-19, and that really came about as a result of not being able to have students have the protective equipment that they needed. And and literally the weekend that we were contemplating that, I'd contacted the Ohio Department of Health, and I said, I have a crazy idea that I want to run by you. And uh, they actually didn't think it was that crazy. They loved it. Uh, and it was the idea of training our students in the, all the issues related to COVID-19, public health, infectious disease, et cetera, and deploying them to any county public health or community health center that might need them to help with this pandemic. Now, you talk about uh, training them. Did you do an, any kind of online module or anything that, that helped in that training? Yeah, actually, they're going to be doing their training concomitantly. We developed 20 modules dealing with everything you can imagine that has to do with uh, with COVID-19 and really kind of the backdrop of public health on with that. So epidemiology on how it impacts every group, even pediatrics, dentistry, pregnant patients, et cetera, on the principles of on public health, on new drugs that might be in development, on, et cetera. They're going to do that and, and half their time. And the other half of their time, they're working with a local county public health in all the public health issues that they're dealing with, the identification of new cases, the tracing of contacts, the uh, implementation of um, policy and process at the county level. So I know what a normal clinical setting is for these students. This is quite a bit different, but what do you expect your students to come back with after this experience? What is the learning objective you have for them. Yeah, so these are the future physicians of Ohio and the nation. And 
uh, this issue is not going to go away on quickly or issues similar to this. So these students will have frontline training in the management of infectious disease and population health and public health. And when they enter the workforce, will be extremely well prepared to be a member and leader of a team dealing with these kind of public health issues. Now, I know that they also will be of great assistance to public health offices that usually have limited staffs, correct? Yes, that's that's right. In, in, in Ohio and in, in, in many states, public health is not one of the most funded on parts of, of our government. Uh, and those people are often very uh, spread thin. So deploying, you know, 250 uh, workers into that setting should be able to help unload that burden some. Talk about also what you've done with your more advanced students. You expedited their graduation. What what does that mean? Yeah, so we were working on the plan for the fourth year students at the same time. And our, our overall curriculum is actually longer than the minimum requirement by about 30%. So I called up our accreditors and asked them if they would consider waiving the last month of their uh, rotations, uh, shortening their program by four weeks, and had our curriculum committee and and rest of the leadership look at that and approve that. Um, what that allowed us to do was to graduate our students early. So their graduation date is going to be three weeks earlier. And we've had a number of health uh, uh, systems, hospitals, approach us about the possibility of these students entering their residency period of time on early, again, as additional additional workers. And part of what we were trying to do is play out all scenarios. And the scenario that I was most preparing for is the all hands on deck uh, scenario. And I would much rather have our students prepared to enter directly into their postgraduate training and be on uh, both helping and learning on all at the same time than, than as part of some general medical corps or, or, or something else. I know you lead a group of uh, medical school deans from around Ohio. Uh, are other medical schools doing this similar things? Well, yeah, I'm aware of there's two around the nation. Uh, Massachusetts and New York have both moved in this direction. And a number of the other medical schools in Ohio are looking at a selected on early graduation for some of their uh, for some of their students. As far as I know, as of today, we're the only one that has uh, moved our entire graduation for the whole class on back by uh, three weeks. Now we've heard also about uh, personal protective equipment shortages, PPE shortages. Uh, your college actually came up with some additional resources, correct? Yes, we did. We. Um, in our training program, we we have some of this for uh, for training, and then we also uh, working across various different departments at Ohio University gathered together the equipment uh, that that we have, and we we donated uh, masks, gloves, uh, gowns, uh, the N95 masks, a really fairly significant amount to on uh, local on uh, public health, and we're actually working on. Uh, on a collaborative with a number of people to see if there are ways that we can uh, help provide even more on at this point. We're recording this uh, in the first week, uh, the end of the first week of April, and uh, just heard the Ohio uh, Director of Public Health 
saying that, and the governor as well, saying that there's still a shortage of PPE equipment uh, in Ohio. Is that significant? Oh, yes, it definitely is. And as, as we're getting to this um, place where the surge is about to occur, that's become um, even more important. So donations are extremely helpful. Uh, I'm really proud of the work that's going on here in Ohio. And, you know, in particular, Battelle uh, developed a, an ability to um, sanitize the, the N95 masks and up, up to 80,000 um, per day. And as soon as that occurred, it was a game changer on, and not needing to necessarily have new masks, but masks that have been, uh, you know, disinfected and ready to be to be used again. Uh, but in that period of time of a surge and the caring for many, many people that are ill and needing to change equipment on a regular basis and keeping people safe, uh, that equipment it really is a it's 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 a lifesaver. Before we get into talking about public health in, in general, uh, there, there's a question I think is on the mind of a lot of people in our audiences. We see different states hitting different peaks at different times. And perhaps to, to the average person out there, it, it sounds really confusing uh, why that would be, number one. And number two, how can we have fewer people coming down with the virus and perhaps fewer hospitalizations at the same time we're having increased deaths? Can you sort of break that down for us so in understandable terms? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try. So actually, even if you look at any one state, so if you look across Ohio on right now, um, various different parts of the state are being hit, hit at a different time. Uh, if you look at other states, some states have not taken uh, swift action and limit on uh, people's uh, movement out of the home and social distancing, et cetera. In some of those places, disease has spread uh, more quickly. Uh, in general, where you have more people, uh, the disease is, uh, is spread from person to person. And if you haven't done things like having people uh, you know, stay in the home and shelter in place, uh, the exposure is really uh, uh, increased. The, the, I think the one thing about this disease is that it's just so easy for it to spread, spread from person to person. Uh, we, we think there's a pretty significant number of people that are asymptomatic, uh, maybe 25%. Uh, and uh, this can live on surfaces for some time, a couple days on uh, door handles and things like that. So it's just such an infectious, uh, I mean, just really it transfers so easily. I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so much of it. And the other part is there's a lot of people walking around that have it that don't know uh, and can very easily uh, infect others. So I really applaud the efforts of social distancing or what I really am starting to call physical distancing, staying physically distant from uh, others to minimize the uh, potential uh, effect of this. Um, the it, it almost looks like there's two patterns of the disease, which you have most people who will come down with a mild upper respiratory infection, cough, sore throat, uh, and another group that will get severely ill. Uh, and there's a pretty high mortality rate for those people that get uh, severely ill right now, and their recovery is much longer. So 
if we see the numbers going down in new cases, for example, in New York, we've heard about that for the last few days, but yet yesterday was the highest death toll. There's a delay between somebody being diagnosed and a death, correct? And that's why you get a differential? Yeah, that's where the difference is coming. So the la- in, in, in this um, pandemic or any you know kind of mass infectious disease process that's going on, the f- first you see the rise in new cases, then a rise in deaths. It, when you're going out the other end, the last thing that you'll see are the number of deaths decreasing as the disease in general has been um, quieting down in the, in the community. Doctor, I wanted to circle back to public health. Uh, again, an area that I don't think many people knew much about, maybe some people still don't know much about, uh, but uh, every state has a public health officer, a chief public health officer, and then it breaks down into whether it's regions or parishes or counties, it breaks down to something more local and more grassroots. But how are those people selected and what do they do? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. And, you know, a lot of states, they'll they'll break it down by county. So every county has a, a public health officer, a commissioner, and uh, often they also have uh, nurses and some other lay people that they do a variety of activity, uh, not only in the infectious disease uh, space, but looking at food safety and restaurants and uh, and things like that, immunization programs and other other safety uh, programs. Uh, most typically, you have a uh, a physician engaged either as the commissioner or on staff. Uh, sometimes those are part time on uh, positions and. Um, at the at a height of activity like we have going on right now, often on uh, other governmental agencies uh, as well as individuals really kind of form a network. And uh, I was on a call earlier with an, uh, one of the public health agencies on uh, where uh, police, fire, uh, uh, emergency management, uh, the school, the school system, uh, everybody uh, was on in a coordinated way. And having a conversation about how do they how do they respond? How do they deploy uh, safety equipment? How do they uh, take care of uh, the sick and homeless? And really trying to think about things comprehensively across the uh, the community. So public health folks are really kind of taking a comprehensive look at their entire community, looking at the hotspots uh, that might be there and how to manage those hotspots. Interfacing with uh, healthcare and healthcare systems, get a handle on what kind of um, testing is being done, who is sick. Um, all of these um, uh, diseases like this are reported through each of the local county public health uh, departments and then into the Ohio Department of Health for tallying and looking at disease patterns across the state and in, the, uh, in each of the, lo- the locations. Then does the each state public health officer, after that data is accumulated to the Department of Health, is it then reported to the CDC in Atlanta, or yes, is that another process? Yeah, no, no. Then, then that's that's re- that's reported on so that there's a national uh, look at that as well. And there's a constant flow of information from county to state, state to federal, 
on and back again on with that. You know, one of the things that's happening here in, in Ohio and, and in, in, in most states is often groups of experts are being brought together to try to draw meaning out of the data and then represent it back out. And as an example, um, uh, Dr. Amy Acton has a group of um, 14 physicians and epidemiologists and others who are helping to um, draw meaning out of the data and think through on uh, various different policy changes that might need to occur as a result of how the disease is moving around the state. As she's the head of the uh, Department of Health in, in Ohio, uh, many people have seen her uh, both statewide as well as nationally doing uh, almost daily uh, press briefings uh, about the medical situation. It seems that part of the role of that position, or her role in this case, is uh, modeling, projecting, and planning. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. And I think at multiple different, you know, multiple different uh, levels. And, and when you say modeling, the, the reason I say on multiple levels is the idea here, uh, as an example, on Friday, uh, the CDC came out with a recommendation for face covering. And on the Saturday broadcast for uh, the Ohio Department of Health and the governor, uh, the governor and her both had their masks that they were uh, using and talking about how they would use them when they were out in, in, in public. So I see modeling a couple different ways here, which is modeling disease and what will happen as we do things like self-isolation. But I really think that the, the governor here and uh, the, the head of um, the Ohio Department of Health are doing a wonderful job modeling leadership and how to act at a, at a time like this. Uh, we talked with uh, John Bourne this, this past week. He's a, uh, a former director of the Ohio Department of, of Safety, Public Safety. Uh, he's also a crisis communication specialist. And he was saying the three things that are important is that you have to be truthful. You, you have to give timely information. You have to be trustworthy. And you have to be clear and repetitive on what you're asking people to do. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would completely agree with that. And, you know, so I think it's pretty well known that in putting out messages like this, that sometimes you have to say it up to eight times um, for people to really get it. And different people, some people are visual, some people are auditory. And um, displaying the message in a variety of ways to really help people um, get it um, is extremely important. And, and, and one of the things that I've learned as an educator is that you often have to take complex issues and distill them down to the simplest forms to help people wrap their head around it. And for one person, a picture really helps them with it. Another is a graph. Another one is a, you know, the words uh, that 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 help them with that. And I really applaud having regular uh, and clear communication uh, that's that that's going on because sometimes it just takes people a little bit uh, to to wrap their head around all, because there's a lot of information that the most important things that they need to, to take home. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. 
The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, the term contact tracing. I know your students are, are being deployed to the uh, various health departments. Uh, I think that's a term that people sort of are uneasy about, what that means. First of all, can you break down the term, and then how might these students help in that process? Yeah, so the, fir- the first thing that public health is, is going to be doing is uh, identifying those people that are on uh, under suspicion of, uh, you know, that uh, someone who is suspected of having, uh, having disease. And once, once there's a strong suspicion of that, and there's a, a, a test that's done, uh, once they've been identified, then the job is to identify in the early phase of a pandemic like this, all the people that they've come in contact with. Now, this disease the average time to someone having symptoms is about five and a half days, but it can be up to 12 days or 13 days. And about 97 plus percent will will demonstrate the disease in that 13-day period. So this two-week period of time, you look for everybody that they've come in contact on with. So that's the contact on tracing, tracing back over the last two weeks. That could be endless. Oh, I it, it sure can be. And, you know, Tom, I think about it, I, or maybe if you try to think about it, prior to us doing this on, uh, you know, sheltering in place. It would be hundreds. Trying to, it's trying to think about all the people you came into contact. Now, the key to this is that someone who you've come into close, prolonged contact with, and not just someone that you passed in the street and said, you know, said hi to. But I, I'll give you an example. Earliest on here. Uh, in Southeast Ohio, we had an, a, 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 a pretty good story of a case for someone who um, was seeing a healthcare provider uh, and for a long enough period of time that uh, the patient was then ended up being tested and the provider uh, had to take a little bit of time off work until we were sure that uh, they did not have they did not have disease. Um, some of the problems with the test early on were it just was a long time getting the results back. Uh, now we're moving towards uh, having more rapid tests available, which would be extremely unhelpful. But just imagine, I, I've, I've thought about this myself. I'm um, trying to think about the people that um, you've come into contact for some period of time over a two-week period of time. One, it'd be tough for me to remember. Uh, but then two, just thinking about the, all the work that it takes to on work back, call up those people, explain that they might have come into contact, see if you if any of them have symptoms, recommendations for them to you know to isolate while testing is being done, and 
Uh, the reason I said in the early part of disease like this is that uh, at, at some point, if disease becomes just pervasive in the community, you shift from that kind of tracing method to then uh, just kind of surveillance of what's what's happening with the disease. But early in all of this, one of the best ways to help prevent spread is is the identification of people that have it and then their contacts to really try to limit the spread. And in, in doing that, if you contact someone uh, and say, okay, this person who has been identified with the COVID-19 virus has said that he or she uh, had a, a lengthy conversation with you uh, at their office, uh, you should now do what? You should isolate yourself? What, what, what is the person contacted supposed to do? Yeah, most commonly they'll ask, the, they'll ask to, them to self-isolate and avoid contact with others to symptom monitor to see if they come up with any of the symptoms of the disease and, and often to take their temperature twice a day. And if any of those start to occur, then they might shift from being in, in isolation and, and, and checking in with them to having them tested as well. Heard about in the state of Washington and even here in Ohio, uh, some outbreaks within nursing homes. Now, clearly, the people who are the inhabitants of the nursing home can't go out and mix with the public necessarily, but their staff people can. So I assume it's the staff people who would be the primary source of contact tracing. Yeah, that what, what happened particularly early in this disease is since there's folks are asymptomatic for some period of time and some never get, never get the disease that... Some of the workers uh, or visitors might have come into uh, the the nursing home uh, and uh, given disease to the to the uh, the residents that are that are there. And typically, when that when that happens, the resident is then isolated from the others. And in most healthcare facilities now, are taking extreme precautions with uh, having on uh, staff wearing uh, masks to help on uh, prevent the spread of disease. Uh, lots of hand washing, lots of surface washing, on um, limiting on um, visitors on uh, coming in uh, to really minimize the the disease. And I, I think a lot of folks might have seen, uh, you know, videos and pictures of loved ones waving at their um, uh, folks that are in the nursing home, at, just as a way to prevent, you know, that physical distancing and not allowing the transmission of disease to keep elders safe. Because we know that. Really, with every decade over 50, uh, the significance of the disease goes way up. Uh, and those, those are the most vulnerable people uh, to, uh, to succumbing from the disease. Obviously, things are emerging and evolving, and things will be studied for decades uh, a- after this. But we're also seeing some racial disparities in the deaths. Uh, at least uh, that's been noted in the news the last couple of days. Yeah, there's a couple of a couple of issues as 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 related to that. So uh, there's reports of uh, African Americans uh, having a higher uh, rate of uh, negative effect from the disease. Uh, there are some disease processes that uh, African Americans have as a uh, higher incident of uh, diabetes and hypertension. 
uh, and, and things like that. And we know all anybody with a pre-existing disease is more likely to uh, uh, have significant effects of, of COVID-19. Uh, and then uh, folks who are workers who, uh, as part of their job, are coming in close proximity to others are the ones who uh, are more likely to get the disease um, as uh, as well as 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 part of that. So we're just starting to see and understand some of the some of the racial um, differences and some of the uh, pre-existing conditions that might uh, or that do. Uh, lead to a, a more severe form of the of the illness. Circling back to our, our public health officials, uh, they cannot, at least from my view, they cannot remain static. Not only are they dealing with a disease that is changing in numbers every single day, but they have to be planning for facilities and equipment and projecting what peaks might be, but then I assume they also have to be planning on how we might come out of this as well. Yeah, there's a lot of what I've been saying is like primary, secondary, and tertiary uh, planning that 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 needs to go on. On the as, as you had as you had said, uh, the combination of planning with the with the health system, with other governmental agencies, with non governmental agencies. Um, it's it, one of the, I guess, the most heartening things at this time is the way people are coming together to try to create rapid solutions to the problems that are being um, presented um, in the in the community. And then that, as you said, not only looking at how do we get through this pandemic, but then what does it look like on the on the other side, and what are the some of the things that we we can't take our eyes off of. So. I'll give you a really simple example. A lot of kids right now are not getting immunized. We've stopped elective on kind of procedures and office visits. And even though pediatricians' offices are may still be open to to giving immunizations, moms, rightly so, are afraid of having their kids get the disease right now. So you have to kind of keep some of those things in mind. What if you now have a group of folks who haven't gotten their primary immunizations and then um, you know, things like measles uh, uh, that you would have to be thinking of uh, after that? And how can you balance all of these things at a time of pandemic and then thinking past that, that period of time and other consequences uh, that might come up? So this is... I'm hesitating because I have a feeling that the public, many people in the public, think that there's going to be a day certain when this is over. What I'm hearing you say is that it is really an ongoing linear situation that could stretch out till we don't know when. Yeah, I think the big question that is being looked at right now is, uh, is this a single event that will burn itself out and pass? Or is this something that will have some kind of cyclical nature to it and come back two or three times or come back seasonally, you know, God forbid. Um, And some of the early thinking is that um, we're we're probably not going to just have one wave and be done. 
on what it looks like. Is it sporadic cases on the other side or another whole cycle on of this um, is yet to be seen. There's some early modeling of what another wave or round of this might look like very, very early um, in the in the in the thinking and and, and modeling stage uh, of that. But I think one of the things that um, would make any other stage of this, another phase of this, at least a little, if, if I could even say easier to, to handle, is that um, the, the development of um, rapid testing um, that is now available and will be available we're still probably sometime out from having a, um, a vaccine, but most other research in the U.S. has really slowed down, and, and the research on detection and, um, and immunization has um, really, really ramped up quite a bit. And then um, trials um, of um, various different medicines that we have right now to see if they're, if they're effective. But in another wave of this, the thing I can confidently say is that um, the ability to test people, which it was very slow, uh, for us at first, uh, will be there. And then walking back through those public health uh, initiatives that we talked about with the ability to identify and then contact trace on folks and to try to really limit the disease and be aggressive early, I think we would be uh, much more prepared for in any other phase of this. From a public health standpoint, doctor, are, are we also looking at a Second round of testing, and that is testing people for antibodies and their uh, immune system uh, being immune to a second round of this? Yeah, there's a variety of tests that are going on right now. And, and one of those are looking at antibodies and looking at uh, people who uh, may have had disease and now are immune, how long that immunity would last. Um, the um, One of the things that's a uh, treatment that emerged out of previous infectious diseases like um, SARS and Ebola was taking the antibodies out on through taking the plasma out, like donating blood uh, and then using those antibodies in uh, treatment for patients that are, that are currently ill on, uh, and which is one of the active treatments that's on, uh, that's going on right now. And there's some stories in the popular, popular literature right now of folks who had the disease, had mild disease, but then had a, really uh, robust uh, antibody response and we're able to donate on uh, plasma to then help those that are that are more sick. So from a public health standpoint, again, back to we aren't being static. There's not only facilities planning, but there's planning for new testing, new rounds, and new medications with the idea that a vaccine maybe a year to a year and a half down the road. That's right. That's right. And the, I, and all the elements related to that. So if you're going to, if you're going to stand up a facility, maybe as a place where people who have mild illness, uh, but can't be home, um, you need to have personnel to help them um, with that. Or uh, if you're going to stand up a uh, kind of a peripheral hospital, then you need to have all the elements uh, related uh, to that and have to think through, Everything, including your uh, uh, heating and um, you know the, your HVAC, uh, and thinking about how does air circulate. It's really pretty comprehensive when you're thinking about trying to create an uh, expanded capacity through in, through using alternate uh, facilities. 
Dr. Johnson, it's always a pleasure. You really help us translate this into understandable terms, and we really appreciate this. If you follow the daily news, and it, you're a muddle of confusion, but you have cleared away some of that confusion for us, and we really appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Tom. It's always great to be here and to, and, and to chat with you, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, about the role of public health officials and the concept of contact tracing. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at Hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.